welcome everyone. Thanks for joining us. My name is Emily Bothell and I'm the Senior Associate Transportation Planner for the MPO of Johnson County. Um, for those of you unfamiliar with the MPO, we are a federally mandated transportation programming and policymaking organization for the county. Um, we channel federal funding for transportation projects and programs to local entities. And we also take part in local programming and planning for area roads, um, transit and bike and ped facilities. So as part of our local bike and ped planning, um, we also conduct trail counts across the Metro at various locations. Um, and we have seen an uptick in the number of users on our local trails since the COVID-19 pandemic began. So with that in mind, we hope our Zoom series um, on trails, running, bicycling, um, will encourage people to get out and enjoy the remarkable trail system that we have. Um, and with that, I'm gonna pass it over to my colleague, Sarah Walls, and she's gonna talk more about the Trails to Table Challenge. Hi, I'm Sarah Walls. I'm an Associate uh, Transportation Planner with the MPO, and just wanna explain quickly what's going on with the Trails to Table Challenge. Our MPO communities, the staff that works for them in those communities are um, Coralville, North Liberty, Iowa City, Tiffin, University Heights. And we also work with, um, uh, and did I say Iowa City? <laughs> we work with the University of Iowa as well. Um, we've always had this, for the last 10 years, we've had a friendly little charity challenge where the staff for those communities raised money. Most of the communities raised for the local food pantries. And with COVID this year and people working from home and some other issues, um, we knew that was gonna be hard for um, folks to do. So the MPO decided to have a little fun. And so we came up with this idea for the Trails to Table Challenge. Um, we are raising money and we provide a link in all of the stuff that we do on um, Facebook, Facebook and Instagram, and also on our um, webpage, mpojc.org. Um, for you to give money um, that benefits all of our local food pantries. But um, we're doing it as part of our staff and there are just five of us here. We are gonna run, bike and walk the 100 plus miles of hard surface trails um, in the Metro area. And we're gonna take you with us through our social media posts. Um, we'll post maps, we'll have little routes, we'll vary them long and short, um, do photos, videos. We're doing these Zoom sessions. Um, and hopes that you'll um, contribute a little to our food pantries. But the bigger thing that we really need help with, and this is what we're gonna turn to you guys for, is um, in addition to the needs that people have economically that take them to the food banks, there's also a mental health crisis. And I think all of us feel a little bit um, socially isolated from people. It's the Zoom sessions are so nice because we get to look at each other's faces while we speak, but um, the trails provide an, an enormous opportunity for people to get out safely and be together. A friend of mine always likes to say, um, it's physical distancing, it's not social isolation. So encourage people to get out there on the trails, even to just get out on the trail and sit on a bench in the sunshine. But to be outside, to explore, it gives you something to look forward to. We know outdoors is a safe place to be with people. So we're hoping that you guys um, who are watching, if you have favorite trails, whether they're paved or not, anywhere in Johnson County, take a little picture of yourself, post it to your social media, say what the trail is, why you love it, encourage your friends to get out there. And if you could add a little hashtag trails to the number two table, 
Um, and that gives us, we're able to trace that a little bit so we know what trails people are using and how useful people find the trails. So with that said, um, we'll get into uh, the presentation. And if you just give me a second, I am sort of learning my way through um, this. I'm gonna go up to my first screen. Um, and of, of course, this is the virtual tour of the Sycamore Greenway, and we're going to have Brenda Nations and Melissa Sorenda with us. Um, I just want to let you know that we have this map available on our website. A little bit about the Sycamore Greenway for those of you who are looking for trails to walk and bike. One of the appeals of this is that it's a relatively flat trail, not a lot of topography. Um, there's no street crossings other than when you're actually first getting on the trail. Um, it's popular, but it's not um, as busy as some of our most popular trails. I know, for example, True Blood Trail and Clear Creek Trail and um, the Waterworks Park Trail, those can get really busy on the weekend. Um, Sycamore Greenway Trail is popular, but um, it doesn't get as heavy a use as those. It's also got a lot of nearby parking, a kicker soccer park. Um, at the south end, at the north end, Grant Wood Elementary on non-school days, you can park there. Archibald Elementary, which is near the south end, also on non-school days. And for those people who are biking or who really like to hike uh, or walk a further distance, um, we're now connected between Terry Trueblood Rec Area and um, the Sycamore Greenway Trail. McAllister Boulevard is now in that has uh, uh, bike lanes and it also has a side path. Um, and this map that you're seeing on screen is available um, at our website, mpojc.org. If you scroll to the very bottom and look on the lower left, you'll see the quick links and the trails to table link. You can find the map there and a description of the trails to table program. Um, Sycamore Greenway, I wanna just say someone we couldn't have here today because of just the logistics and timing. Lon Drake, um, and I know Brenda will talk about him, is the person who came up with the concept and the design for the Sycamore Greenway. Um, and I got to meet Lon a number of years ago, a fascinating person, and we really owe a lot of credit to him. Um, I'm just gonna switch um, to another screen, so bear with me. Um, let's see if I can get this up. Trying to transport large amounts of water, this greenway and trail system extends over 9,000 feet and culminates at an engineered wetland. Its purpose? To capture and clean water. Water is directed to the greenway from various neighborhoods. Can you guys hear that? It traps sediment. Yes. And are you seeing it? No. Yes. Okay. Hang on. We'll back it up. I just want to share this. Um... Hang on. Um... One sec. Sorry about the technical difficulties. Uh, let's go to here and I'll get back to it. Um, whoo, that's maybe not gonna, let's see. Here we go. See if I can 
The Sycamore Greenway is located on the southern edge of Iowa City. It was designed to transport large amounts of water. This greenway and trail system extends over 9,000 feet and culminates at an engineered wetland. Its purpose? To capture and clean water. Water is directed to the greenway from various neighborhoods. As it flows south, it traps sediment, excess nutrients, and chemicals that flow off the land. Once it reaches its final destination, nature takes over. The soil, plant, and root systems naturally filter and clean the water. Nutrients are stored and absorbed by plants and microorganisms, and sediment settles to the bottom. The Greenway, in turn, has become a haven for wildlife, offering a habitat that supports a diverse species of birds, small mammals, fish, amphibians, and small aquatic invertebrates. Part of the engineering and design of the Greenway includes a trail to entice the community to come outside, explore, and recharge. The Sycamore Greenway is a showcase of what can happen when civil engineering and design collaborate with nature. So I hope that that played and you were all able to hear it. Um, that's just a, a MMS, a local engineering firm, was involved with the city. So again, Laundrake came up with this idea and, um, and the city worked with an engineering firm to make it real. And that's kind of, um, it's a unique bit of environmental engineering that I don't know that there's anything like it in the Midwest. And um, that's sort of my segue um, into Brenda Nations, who is retired now, but she was our sustainability coordinator here at the city. And um, she also for many years helped with the management of, of the Greenway and worked side by side with Lon Drake on um, a lot of the maintenance. So Brenda. Hi, can you see my screen? Not yet. Oh, there you go. Okay. Um, so what I'm going to talk about is the creation of the uh, Sycamore Greenway and the, of the management of the Greenway. So. Um, Let's see. There we go. So um, as you can see, here's the Sycamore Greenway with Grantwood School to the north and Sycamore Street right here um, to the west. And you see how close it is to the Iowa River and there's exposed scars here and it's really associated um, a lot with the river. There was an old river channel over in this area and some terraces for the river. So in this area, uh, it's very wet. It's really high water table. And they were having some issues with a lot of these homes in here of having wet basements and they were having stormwater management pro problems. And so um, they had two options um, when they were trying to decide how to deal with this excess water in this area. And um, the first option was to, to uh, create just a big ditch and just shunt water out of the area uh, to Snyder Creek that would eventually go to the river. And so um, that would have been much, much cheaper than what they decided um, to do, but they worked with Lon Drake and they chose the second option of creating this really uh, wonderful, great stormwater wetland that is really um, built to, as you heard in the video, convey water off of this area, uh, down in this direction, over to this outland wetland, which then goes to the Slough and uh, Snyder Creek, and then eventually to um, the Iowa River. And in doing so, it, it drains about 500 acres of, of land 
uh, in this area and it really takes the water off um, from when it rains and it goes through this whole system which um, slows down the water and in doing so it also cleans the water um, before it goes uh, to the river. And so with a lot of houses and a lot of construction uh, and um, there's more been more construction since this map was made, uh, more houses, there's going to be more runoff as there's more streets and impermeable surfaces like roofs and houses and um, sidewalks. And so um, the benefits of this were huge. Um, not only is there a two, I think it's about two miles of uh, trail through this. Oops, sorry. Whoa, throw cam. Um, there's two miles of trails, but there's also this uh, stormwater system as well as a great habitat for um, many birds. You can see how close it is to the river. A lot of birds that um, were formerly at Terry Trueblood sometimes now come over to these outland wetlands like pelicans, and um, there's great birds um, in this area as well as plants and of some of the other great things that Melissa's going to talk about um, later. So um, what we have here is, um, and I know you can't see this, so I have some close-ups, is um, the, at least pay attention in this slide to the arrows. The arrows drain in this direction into this um, wetland system here, and we, we have both agricultural, there's a farm field here, farm field here, as well as urban drainage here. So there's a lot of um, ag chemicals as well as urban chemicals that are going through uh, the system that was planted with all native plants. Um, so, whoops, I'm sorry, it should be, there we go. Um, so um, this system is set up, so each one of these, and we labeled them with numbers so we could um, manage them better, each one of these sections is about an acre of land. So there's 22 of these sections that each one is 18 inches lower in elevation than the next one. And so the water, um, should water come in from here, it flows all the way down. But wherever the water comes in, it flows into one of these um, one acre sections and continues to move down in this direction. So um, there's farm tiles entering into this and um, culverts and different things like that and stormwater um, outlets. And so the whole thing is to design to get the water um, off of the off of the landscape and into the wetland. Uh, so this is the um, north half of the wetland. Each one of those wetlands has, if you've ever noticed in there, maybe you haven't, there's these concrete boxes at each one at the end of those uh, one acre wetlands. And these boxes are meant to um, funnel the water, should it get high enough, down into these boxes and there's a, a pipe underneath each one. And so if there's too much water um, that it can't handle both the soil or the vegetation, the water goes into this box and under um, underground into a pipe. And when I started, I was hired by um, Public Works um, and my title was naturalist and my job was to work on the conservation management um, for this area as well as other areas in, uh, around this um, part of town. And at, after it was constructed in 2001, um, there had been no management for um, since from when I, um, then until when I was hired in 2008. So in seven years, it was planted, it was constructed, um, but nobody had managed it. 
Uh oh, I think we've have we lost Brenda? Brenda, you're frozen. I'm not sure what's happened to Brenda's connection. Hopefully she can come back in. Okay, let's see. Brenda, um, Brenda, can you hide your video and okay. I'm not sure. <laughs> that was just logging, so hopefully she'll be able to log back in. Okay. You're back. You're muted, though. There. Um, and I was sorry about that. My, I just lost connection. I don't. I have no idea why. Okay. You can't see my screen though, can you? Sorry about that. Let's go. Let's go back. Where were we? Not here. You had just finished the box. Okay, yeah. yeah. So um, when I started as naturalist, um, these were really clogged up with sediment. Um, they had these um, box, these um, wooden slats, and they were filled to the top. So water wasn't really uh, flowing into these. It was pooling in, in the wetland, which is uh, one way of, of dealing with it. But the water was, uh, too much water was uh, dealing um, pooling here and there were some results and um, we'll talk about those. So this was a wonderful thing for the city um, to create. It has so has had so many benefits, but it's also had some challenges and I'm going to talk about the uh, conservation challenges. Um, but here you can see um, more of these wetlands coming in this direction. Also, um, this here is the road to the soccer park and um, there's also wetlands uh, in this direction that flow into the central wetland area and then these outlet wetlands and these have these deeper pools cut into them so the water um, is deeper and then this also is a cell that was added at the end that was um, a wetland mitigation uh, project and up here also Makata buffer you can see up here that's also uh, a wetland mitigation project on uh, three different city wetland mitigation projects projects. And if you don't know what a mitigation project is, um, if you uh, quote unquote destroy a wetland from um, uh, construction or building somewhere, you have to create one somewhere else. And so these were some of the places that from city projects that we created um, wetlands. And so this Makata wetland um, is not actually very much tied to here, but now this has expanded and drained some of the new development up here too. So from here, um, the water drains into the slough and eventually goes to Snyder Creek and um, the river. And there's like a, a beaver um, issues here. And it seems like it's gotten uh, wetter and wetter through the years. Originally in this, can you see my mouse? Originally uh, where I'm circling with my mouse, that was gonna be, um, there was gonna be a road that goes through uh, in this direction. They were gonna um, have a park-like area, um, but that didn't happen. So. Um, there's 22 of these one acre wetlands. Um, they're about an acre. And then this is about 31 acres total. So the whole wetland system is about 50 acres and it can hold, um, it can hold over a million cubic feet of water. And so, um, and it does its job. And um, I've seen pictures of water 
after it's rained, it's very cloudy, and then later it's very clear. And so it really allows the water to slow down and the sediment um, drops out before it goes to the river. So let's see, um, as far as, uh, I can't remember if I said the cost of it was $2.6 million and that included um, the land, the construction, the uh, native plantings and uh, the engineering costs, the whole total cost was 2.6 million um, back in 2001, uh, which is much more expensive than a ditch would have cost, but the benefits um, have really outweighed that, I think. So this is a picture of what it looked like when I started um, working on the management of it. And this is like at the end of where one of the boxes um, uh, is in one of the wetlands, one of these 22 uh, one acre wetlands. And you can see all of these trees sprouted up because uh, there were many willows and different uh, trees that were wet that were really shading out some of the prairie plants. And so um, these were not planted here. They um, were seen as invasive and like uh, the roots were going into where the pipe are, pipe is underground. And these were like unwanted. And these, so when I started, there was seven years of growth of these trees um, in, in this wetland area. Um, here's another picture of, this is near the sculpture, if you are familiar with the area. And um, there was just trees, so many trees. This is one of the uh, worst areas because it was near a farm field and, and one of the wettest areas with this culvert coming in. And so um, this is what it looked like um, when I started uh, managing it. And the goal was to get rid of these trees to let the light in so the prairie plants that were planted there could um, have a better chance of survival and do their job in the system. Um, this is what it looked like. Unfortunately, I did not have to do it alone. We worked with the, a volunteer program um, that we had at the city and we worked with many uh, students. Uh, and one year we calculated how many hours we spent in student time and volunteer time. And we spent over 500 hours um, getting rid of the trees in the, in the wetland. And so um, they were cut off um, and taken to the side and uh, ground into mulch. But you can see it didn't, it didn't look really pretty um, after, that, uh, after that. So, but it did let the light in for the um, prairie plants, uh, which it was meant to do. Uh, you can see once after we got the uh, trees out of the way, um, there was quite a bit of reed canary grass, which, are, which is a wetland invasive. And I'll talk about um, that a little more at the end. So it was kind of like getting rid of, rid of one problem um, only to see yet another. So we also started burning um, this on a regular basis since the prairie plants were um, designed to, um, in nature, they regenerate quite a bit better when they're burned look like natural fires. And so um, I was fortunate enough to have uh, get firefighter training uh, for um, prescribed burns. And so we burn this on a, um, we try to burn like a, uh, on rotation and not burn too much at a time. So they're, um, that, that different species could move. Um, some of the neighbors thought it was great and enjoyed watching it. And other neighbors um, didn't like the smoke in the, in their houses and were sort of alarmed. So it has some challenges with burning, but here's a picture of, um, the, uh, of a site the year after um, we burned. And for some reason, the golden Alexanders, which are the yellow flowers, really came back in gangbusters. And also these white flowers that are Canada anemone, the whole area just benefited so much from these burns. And you can see this barn in the background, which is now 
um, collapse, but um, this area benefited so much and this is what it was supposed to look like um, um, originally. And so we got those trees out and the whole place was just full of these gorgeous um, native prairie plants. Uh, so uh, I talked about reed canary grass. I worked with the University of Iowa student who went out and mapped the reed canary grass to let us know how um, bad of a problem that we had. And um, these, I know this is kind of hard to see, but oops, this reed canary grass um, in these wetlands, and he only looked at these um, 22 acres of wetlands, he calculated with um, mapping and GIS that about 50% of the area is covered with reed canary grass, which is really unfortunate because um, reed canary grass is a really, really hard uh, invasive to get rid of. And so um, it would probably gonna happen sooner or later, no matter what we did, but once we um, have it, it's so hard to, to uh, get rid of. It's just one of the, it's like, um, like woodlands, you have garlic mustard, and that's a tough one to get rid of in wetlands you have reed canary grass. It's just, you know, we've tried burning and digging it up and it's, you know, it's hard to, you don't want to use chemicals in this wetland area, but it's just, uh, it's really almost impossible to get rid of. So um, that's going to be always a challenge about and, and keep the diversity of those wonderful plants that we um, have planted. So, um, so that was, I worked on management um, of this area from 2008 to about 2000, 2013 and my position changed and I was no longer out here, um, out in this area working. Um, but, and so, and so I've since retired. And so I'm not sure um, what the timeline for, for this is, but um, at some point they are gonna move, they are gonna put um, an extension of ex McAllister through here and you can see, here is the uh, wetland, and um, McAllister is going to go right through here to connect with um, on the streets on the east side and also McAllister Bridge, which um, makes sense as far as traffic goes, but it's going to be interesting to see how um, that affects the trail and the wetland and the, and the water flow. And so um, maybe some of the current city employees might know the timing of that, but I know there's several um, options of where this would where this would go through, but um, the general plan is to be in this area. And um, we did, uh, I worked with another university class that planted some shrubs in here, some native shrubs, and they tried to avoid this area that the, the um, road is gonna go through. And they planted the shrubs to, um, uh, to be equivalent to the carbon offsets that they were gonna do for a uh, spring field trip that they were going to travel. So they calculated how much carbon they would be using for their trip. And uh, to offset it, they planted um, uh, native shrubs here uh, in this area. So, and they're, that was several years ago and they're, um, they're quite nice now, I think. So anyway, um, that's about all I have as far as the um, early management. We really got a handle on some of this stuff. I did talk to the um, park superintendent there continuing to um, try and burn it, although it's uh, wet and always getting wetter, it seems like. And so it has some difficulties for um, finding a good time to burn. I, I noticed that when we burn in the fall, it's much more, uh, there's a saying, fall fires favor forbs and forbs are the um, flowers. And so uh, I like to burn in the fall. 
but it, uh, if they burn at different times, it's um, just dependent on the weather and how wet it is. But if you want more information, um, the city now has a natural areas inventory and management plan. Um, and we have really come a long way since um, the beginning of when some of these places were created. Um, Public Works um, created about uh, several hundred acres of natural areas with the Waterworks Prairie and with the Sycamore. And we didn't really have the staff or understanding on how to manage those. And now um, we have this whole plan on how to manage um, all of the areas. And we have staff, um, staff on board now that has training and information. And if you want to look up any of the areas that you uh, like to uh, visit, um, there's a plant species list in this plan. And also um, there's a management plan of what uh, this consulting firm recommended. And for all of the city property, it's hours and hours and hours. And um, there's cost estimates and hours estimates. And you can see it's quite huge to um, manage some of these properties to the level that uh, we would like, but we're doing a much better job than we uh, did 10 or 20 years ago. So that's all that I have. Super. So then our next presenter is M Melissa Sorenda. And Mel Melissa lives in the area and is a naturalist. Um, and uh, she, if you, if you do not know about it yet on Facebook, uh, look up uh, Sycamore Greenway Friends. Melissa, I think you must travel the trail almost daily. Um, and just some of the most interesting posts, wonderful photographs, wonderful um, just details of every kind of life that can be found along the trail. And it's really, it'll make your day to, to see the posts that she puts out. So Melissa, go right ahead. All right. Thanks, Sarah. I'm out there probably more like weekly, but I am posting almost <laughs> daily. So, yep, that gives the impression that I'm out there all the time. So thank you, Sarah, for inviting me and for all the work that you're doing to promote our trail system here in Iowa City and in the county. And also, Brenda, thank you for all the support in developing the Greenway and sustaining it over the years. Let me see if I can share my screen here. Share. Okay. All right, so I've got the easy job here. Basically, I'm just gonna be showing you some pictures of things that you can see along the Greenway throughout the year. And that's basically how the Sycamore Greenway Friends got started, I think back in 2016 as a way to share all of the sights and sounds that you can see some of the wildlife and other interesting sights along the trail. Um, it started as a Facebook page, like Sarah mentioned, and later on I created a blog for some of my more long-winded posts and also moved over on to Instagram as well for people who prefer that platform. I first discovered the Greenway Trail well before that. I think it was in 2011. Um, I was living on the east side near Town Crest and always on the lookout for some new trails to visit with my dog, and I saw this Sycamore Greenway Trail on a trail map with this spur sticking out to the south. So we went and parked at the soccer park, me and my dog Hugo, began walking north and it was just so quiet and serene, it was beautiful. And then I heard this unearthly sound from overhead. I looked up and I saw these four sandhill cranes flying over 
I'd never seen cranes before, and it was just a magical moment out there on the Greenway that I never forgot, and I was hooked. It turns out that there's a family of cranes that live in the area. There's a small group of two to four cranes that can be seen uh, most years throughout the summer, and occasionally you'll see larger groups passing through in the springtime or during migration season. Um, it's always a lucky day when you'll see the cranes, but you might not see them as much as you, you can hear their calls along the trail, probably a mile or two away from where they are. And I have this video that I harvested from YouTube to hopefully let you hear some of the sounds. Pretty distinctive noise. Once you hear it, you'll, you'll probably never forget it, kind of prehistoric sounding. So the cranes hooked me originally. I didn't get very far on that first trip, but the next visit I started on the north end, like that map that uh, Brenda showed, and I was pleasantly surprised to find a piece of public art tucked away on the outskirts of town there. It was the birds and flight sculpture. Not, not the cranes again, there we go, birds in flight. And it's a kinetic sculpture that if you've seen it, it those birds at the top turn gently in the wind and it's really charming rising up out there and I love this picture in the lower right I hope you can see it it's kind of blocked by people on my screen but it's got a picture of the rear end of a rabbit that some raptor had carried up to the top of the sculpture and left to eat with its little legs dangling down over the side and I think it's a nice metaphor for um both the greenway or the sculpture in how we can build something for ourselves that nature and wildlife can also use and coexist and inhabit the same area with us. So for us, it's a piece of public art for the hawk, it's the dinner plate. Winter along the greenway, it's not quite as scenic as the other seasons. It doesn't have all the bright colors and flashy animal life that you'll find in the spring and summer, but there's still plenty to see. In the warmer months, I'm always looking for flowers and bugs, uh, lots of green and yellow, but in the winter, I slow down and see texture and light. There's cloudy sunrises, um, glittering frost coating the remnants of a flower. It's a different kind of beauty. But that's not to say that there's not wildlife to see. There's muskrats at the wetlands and you'll see all of our usual suburban squirrels and rabbits. The insects may all be gone, but you can find the egg cases of praying mantises like the one down in the lower right. Um, and of course, there's deer. If you spend much time at all on the trail, you'll find some white-tailed deer. Sometimes they're pretty obvious, just running, chasing each other across the trail. Sometimes you have to look a little bit more closely to see them hunkered down there in the grass. There's plenty of birds to see during the winter, woodpeckers. Um, I think of that, the wooded area on the north side of the trail, I call it woodpecker alley in my head because there's so many woodpeckers of all different species that you can see and hear in that, that wooded area. You can also hear some tapping from the grassy cells and that would probably be a little downy woodpecker, this guy on the left. They'll cling to and tap at the, the sturdy stems of cup plant or some of the other forbs that we have out in those in the areas alongside the trail, looking for larvae. 
And then I've got a nuthatch here, just as a, a similar bird that you'll see in the same area as the woodpeckers. And you'll see a lot of the same common backyard birds that you'll find, cardinals, blue jays, chickadees, our state bird, the goldfinch. Um, and you'll see raptors too. In addition to owls and hawks though, there's also a pair of bald eagles that nest at the wetlands. And that's a pretty neat sight. Um, they have their nest in a big snag out across the wetlands. If you're on that gravel extension, if you remember the map that Brenda showed, there was a kind of a planned road that hasn't happened. If you're on that gravelly area looking out to the east, you can see that nest way off in the distance. It's a big kind of jumbled mess of twigs that the, the eagles return to every year. And you can also encounter the eagles themselves, not only in their nest, but just kind of hanging out around the wetlands. And sometimes you'll find them at the north end too, in that woodpecker alley. This guy in the middle here, he was just, I just saw him a couple weeks ago up in that north end. So eagles abound. And this, these are some of my favorites. I love sparrows. And it's easy to just kind of dismiss them as little brown birds if you're not familiar with them. House sparrows on the right, they're these insanely successful non-native birds that were introduced in the late 19th century uh, and spread across the continent. They cover almost the entirety of the country by this point, and you can find them literally everywhere. You'll see them all along the Greenway. You'll see them in your yards, they're by the soccer park. You'll find them downtown on the Ped Mall outside Chipotle begging for scraps. Uh, they're pugnacious, and they have a pretty unsavory reputation because they have a habit of um, evicting some of our more gentle native species from their cavities where they nest, like bluebirds and swallows. So they're got a little bit of an iffy reputation among ecologists. And on the left here, really similar looking, is the Eurasian tree sparrow. It's another non-native. It was introduced into the St. Louis area around the same time, but it hasn't expanded nearly as, as far nearly as widely. And they're a little bit smaller, a little less pugnacious, don't have quite the same reputation for causing harm and um, evicting our native species that the house sparrows do. And so for the longest time, when I was on the Greenway, I would just see these flocks of sparrows, assume they were all house sparrows, eh, don't need to look at them, they're house sparrows. But just a couple years ago, I finally noticed, hey, these sparrows look different. They're a completely different kind of sparrow, related, but not the same as house sparrows. So um, it was just kind of a neat thing and a reminder to don't make assumptions about what you're seeing. Look closely, take a look, see what you're really seeing, and maybe take an effort to understand it. And that's how I learned that the Eurasian tree sparrow was a thing and that they were in our neighborhood. I could probably fill 20 slides with birds, all kinds of birds on the Greenway. Here I've kind of limited them to um, some of the more iconic prairie species that you'll see. This guy, this amazing Dick Sissel, mid-song. Um, this is a female Dick Sissel holding a grasshopper. She was just kind of waiting for me to move along, get out of there so she could bring that juicy morsel to her nestlings. Um, you'll hear them constantly in the summer and I've got this little piece of audio with the Dick Sissel song.
not super melodic, but it's something you'll hear on the Greenway. And it's, it's just a, a fun thing to recognize once you learn what it is. And also this common yellow throat, another very common bird that you'll see in here on the Greenway. They've got a witchetty witchetty song. Okay, I guess that's all I'm gonna play. <laughs> and then the meadowlark also, I don't have audio of them, but they've got a very lovely whistling song. Um, let's see, one more set of birds I think I've got here. Blackbirds. You may have been dive bombed by a red-winged blackbird on the trail um, during breeding season. I think they do it pretty frequently, but I haven't heard of any serious harm they've caused, but just a warning that they're out there and they'll do that. Uh, female blackbirds, you'll see them. They're not quite as distinctive as the male red-winged blackbirds. They look a little like big sparrows with pointy, pointy bills with their streaky brown coloring. Um, we've got some of the shiny blackbirds, brown-headed cowbirds. Males have a brown head, obviously. Makes it easy to remember. Common grackles with their shiny iridescent heads and that piercing yellow eye. And up here in the upper right is a rusty blackbird, a little bit more subdued than the others, but it also has this really interesting piercing pale eye that I, I enjoy seeing. And bugs. The Greenway page in the summer is just, just full of bugs, all kinds of bugs. It's an amazing time to spend outside. So as soon as some of the flowers start to bloom, uh, beginning with our early flowering trees in the spring, you'll start to see bees and other insects out and about. Um, like the birds, I could probably show you 20 slides of just all the bugs and insects that you'll see. Um, the important thing to remember is walk slowly and look closely. I don't know how many times I've just been kind of stroll along the greenway thinking there's nothing out there to see. What am I going to take pictures of? And then I stop and actually look at a clump of flowers and it's covered with bees and flies and ants and wasps and so many, so many insects that I just didn't even see because I was just strolling right on past. So walk slowly, look closely, and you'll be amazed at how many things you'll see. In addition to all the, the pretty charismatic insects like the monarchs and fuzzy bumblebees, there's some kind of weird bugs that are also fun to encounter. This guy on the wild quinine is a chalcid wasp. He's got this chunky thigh on top of a skinny little leg. Uh, many wasps will capture caterpillars around other insects and paralyze them, lay an egg on that poor victim, and then that little wasp larva will hatch out and eat that paralyzed victim. It's possible that the chunky leg on the wasp helps to, to maneuver that victim into position as they're, they're stowing it for their wasp baby to eat later. So just a, one of those cool things that you don't know lives out on the Greenway. I was pretty excited to find that. Another one is spittle bugs. I don't know how I got through my childhood without knowing that spittle bugs were a thing, but pretty neat. They're at the larva of an insect called a frog hopper and the larva will secrete these frothy bubbles to help them both conserve moisture and as a um, camouflage from predators. And for the most part, it would work for me. I'm not gonna go digging in a frothy spit pile looking for something, but yep, just a, a neat little guy you'll find on the greenway if you walk slowly, look closely. And then if you can bear with me for one more insect slide, this is my absolute favorite, the camouflage looper. Um, 
it's a moth larva that dresses itself up in flower petals. Um, they'll snip them and attach them to their body with silk. Full disclosure, this guy up here, this was taken in my garden as an experiment. I moved him from a, um, I think it was a gray-headed coneflower with yellow petals onto a purple-flowered ironweed and came back an hour or two later and I could see how it was starting to slowly change its clothes to match the purple ironweed. Really neat little caterpillar and you'll see them on the greenway in the summer. They grow up to be these really pretty pale moths. It's called a wavy, wavy lined emerald, I think is the name. Um, greenway, as um, Brenda mentioned, it's planted with a variety of really deep rooted native prairie plants and other plants that serve as habitat for our pollinators and other wildlife. You'll find at least three different types of milkweed um, for the popular monarchs. And my favorite over here, the host for the camouflage looper. And um, there's a lot of plants that also don't get as much press as things like milkweed. This one down here in the lower left, that partridge has extra floral nectaries. Those are little pots of nectar that are found at the base of the leaves. Um, ants, flies, and other insects will feed it, and in return, it's thought that they will protect the plant from herbivores and other animals that would eat the leaves. So they're getting getting that nectar reward in exchange for the service they provide for the plant. There's so many flowers that we could talk about. I just wanted to mention a couple more. Um, these are some of the tall yellow flowers that you'll see in the summertime. Uh, the greenway is just awash with cup plants in the late summer. That's these the plants in the background. And their leaves form a cup around the stem. They kind of clasp the stem. And you might see the little cups filled with water after rain. Compass plant is another one, this one on the left. It's a, a tall and rugged looking plant with these really deeply serrated leaves. And it gives its name to the leaves habit of orienting themselves north and south as an adaptation to help them conserve moisture during hot summer days and kind of minimize how much of their leaf is presented to that hot sun during the, the hot, hot summers on the prairie. So after all of that, I've hardly even touched on the wetlands, uh, the sycamore wetlands or the sycamore bottoms. It's a birding hotspot, not to mention all of the turtles and frogs and fish and mammals and other creatures that you'll find in those basins. There's shepherds. I can't even begin to name all of them. I know this red-eyed killdeer for sure. Um, there's waterfowl. You'll see uh, trumpeter swans coming through occasionally. Um, there's a pelican over here. I know Brenda also mentioned those. It's kind of hard to see these guys in the snags, but these little little lumps are each a gray or a great blue heron. Your frogs. In the springtime, you'll hear things like these chorus frogs. Yeah, the wetlands are just full of animals. So if you if you like nature, it's a great place to go and, and just listen, look, see what's out there. And then finally, I just wanted to close with my perennial reminder to share the trail. We're not the only ones out there and it's really easy to squish our little neighbors on the greenway. I've run over and stepped on my share of snakes and snails. 
even after reminding people to watch their step over and over and over again. But if you walk slowly and look closely, be sure to glance around at the ground, see what else there is to see, not just in the flowers trail itself. You may find yourself like me, jumping at a catalpa seed pod that you think is a little brown snake sunning itself on the trail. Or you may hunker down and for a closer look at something that turns out to be poo. It happens to me all the time. And yep, I take pictures of it on accident and I never post those. So it's closed that, yep, you, you only see all the good stuff that I find on the Greenway, but I find things that are enchanting as well. So that's all I've got. Thanks for letting me share some of the sights and sounds of the Greenway. And I hope this is giving you a taste of some of the diversity that you can find out on the trail throughout the year. You can follow the Facebook page uh, for mostly daily updates on what's going on. That's all Thanks, Sarah. I'll turn it back over to you. Okay. I don't know if we, if you want to end your, yeah. Um, I don't know if we have any questions from the people that are out there. One of the questions we had for all of you are, you know, if you could indicate in the chat, um, if you have visited the um, Sycamore Greenway Trail in the past and what brings you there, whether it's more like fitness, biking, running, or whether it's nature observation. And also, um, and also, um, if you want to share with us before the end any you know questions that you have about the Greenway Trail or other trails, we're going to be the Trails to Table Challenge is going to go through the month of January, and we're um, and we're going to um, be exploring a lot of trails. So if there are particular trails that you're interested in or types of trails, um, we'd love to hear about that um, from you as well. Um, Melissa, one thing I thought I would ask you was, I know you showed in that one slide um, the seeds from the, or I'm sorry, the eggs from the praying mantis. And I know they have an interesting name and I can't remember what it is. Uthika. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but O-O-T-H-E-C-A. Okay, that's one for a spelling bee or a trivia competition. <laughs> and um, go ahead, did someone have? <clears throat> There are a couple of Q&A questions up. Okay. Um, I don't know if, I, if I'm the only one who can see them, I can read them, but. Yeah, I don't, <clears throat> oh, I see one. Um, Brenda, when the invasive trees were removed, were the stumps treated to prevent regrowth? Oh, that's under chat, but oh. that's a question too. Yes, and I saw that there are two questions in our Q&A, but I can answer that real quick. Um, yes, they were. And so we had to be really careful because it was near water. And so we had to um, very carefully um, uh, use pesticide, I mean, herbicides to, to uh, keep them from regrowth, which we, you know, kind of are around wet areas have to be very careful, but it's the only way to really keep them from coming back. And some of them are coming back anyway. So uh, one thing I wanted to add to Melissa's um, talk about different species they that are there are there also you talked about blackbirds there's also yellow-headed blackbirds which um in the outlet area and those are just awesome and they weave their nest with the in uh, cattails with the cattail leaves and those are really uh, i don't think i've ever seen them anywhere else but there i'm sure they're they might be in other areas of the city but another plant that i haven't seen in other um city 
uh, natural areas are the Illinois bundle flower and then has this really cool uh, dried seed head so people can look out for those too. Kevin, I'm not seeing the question. So if there are any that you want to read, um, and I would just say that, you know, this part of Iowa City, as, um, as Brenda was saying, is very wet. And so one of the nice things when Lon Drake showed me around there, um, we did a tour of the area south of, um, of the Sycamore Greenway. And it is just all kinds of wetlands and ponds and streams. And so this area in the spring, one of the things that happens is it's um, the turtles migrate um, to to lay their eggs. And so you'll often hear people um, reporting um, turtles along, not just the trail, but along the road. So uh, really look out for them, um, especially our snapping turtles are, are the one that get the most notice and you have to be careful. Uh, <laughs> But um, that's a species that we really do want to protect. And I'd always wish that the, that the Archibald um, Alexander Elementary, I wish their mascot would have been the turtle, but I didn't get a vote on that. Um, here's from Astrid Bennett. Um, Thanks for the excellent and informative presentation. I've been a resident frequent user of the park since 1978. Sycamore Greenway is my favorite and has impressed me as an area with the most biodiversity of all of them, not only for plants, but animals. And it also serves well for recreation. I walk and also draw on the trail lately. I learned about how little of the area is actually owned by the city. I fear that with potential housing and apartments in close proximity to the wetlands, we'll lose this gem while we still have a chance to develop and protect it. Uh, does the city have plans to expand the zone of adjacent areas to ensure the future of this biodiverse area? I, I won't read everything, but there is um, an area um, to the south of, um, well, it actually it would be to the east of that straight up and down part of the trail east of like Sherman Drive and that there is some, there is a subdivision that at some point will go in there, but a large portion of that area has to be preserved as wetland. Um, the sensitive areas ordinance does require um, the preservation of some of these areas. So, so that is a good thing. Uh, we also have a comment from someone on Stanwick Drive and he uses the trail almost every day to walk his dog. How often are burns scheduled? Do we know anything about that, Brenda? Um, Tyler said that they um, are trying to get it in rotation with some of the other areas. And uh, I don't think there have been any burns for a while. But one of the requirements um, when there are burns is that we notify neighboring properties. And so I think that if there is a burn that um, they'll let people know so that people aren't alarmed and people can shut their windows and things like that. So I don't think there's been a burn for a while. but. Um, I think there should be some as soon as the conditions are right. There's two little narrow windows. There's one in the fall and one in the spring and you have to wait just the right time. And then um, the temperature and the wind and everything has to be right. So, um, but look, they'll notify you if, if, you, if there is a burn. One thing that I, with Astrid's comment, one other thing, and I, I don't know, I'm, I apologize that I don't know a lot of details on it, but the city just received a large um, REAP grant for restoration of the Whispering Meadow um, area, Whispering Prairie. I'm going to get the name wrong. Brenda, maybe or Melissa. You know, it's um, 
if you enter Lakeside Drive um, from the from its east end off of the highway, you'll see a large pond there that goes back also into some other wetlands and those um, were kind of in decline and getting filled in and I know the city has gotten a large grant to restore those so that's another area that's being restored. South Iowa City really um, it, it's an amazing area that has a lot of environmental um, offerings. There's also the Sand Prairie Preserve that's off of um, South Gilbert Street, which is a unique short grass form of prairie that's um, pretty rare. Um, the geological history of this area is fascinating. I mean, it just, it has so much to offer. Um, a few years ago, we were doing regular um, bike tours of the South Iowa City area, um, sort of introducing people to those features and also making people aware of um, how often it is um, that the city, um, you know, the preservation of some of these areas, like we talked about Lon Drake coming up with this idea. It's really individuals who come forward with those ideas and bring them to the city. The same is true of the Terry Trueblood Recreation Area. Um, that was an idea that came out of a planning, um, a district planning um, uh, process um, in the late 90s and um, you know some of those things seem like they'll never happen and then and then the time is right and 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 it comes about and I would say that um, the Terry Trueblood uh, recreation area has, has got to be one of the most successful park projects that the city has ever undertaken and I'm always just so impressed with um, you know the diversity of usage that it gets is incredible and I would also say picking up on something Melissa talked about with the bird life is for people maybe who aren't avid birders um, in this in the early spring when the waterfowl is coming through you know a lot of people expect to go and see a lot of that waterfowl on the open water but a lot of the more interesting species um, ducks and and geese and and other waterfowl actually prefer these little backwater areas, prefer sort of more of a sheltered environment and don't wanna be on the open water. And so you'll find completely different species um, on these little ponds and wetlands than you would find out on the Iowa River. So really um, get out and explore. And Melissa, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Nope, nothing to add. Just, yeah, get out and explore and see what you can see. There's so much. And every week, it seems like there's something different. So we're almost out of time, but I just want to end and encourage you all to follow the Trails to Table. And again, no matter how you're using the trails, um, really share that with others. And then finally, I really encourage you to go to our link and give, if you've enjoyed this presentation, just give a small donation. Uh, to our food banks through that link on the Trails to Table page, mpojc.org, down in that lower left at that link, you'll get to the donation link through the Trails to Table page. And um, we really have a lot of people um, who, who really need some extra help this year, and uh, we want to do what we can to help them. So thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you, Brenda. And thank you, everybody that attended. We'll be back here next week, same time. Uh, for a special conversation on running and walking and hiking in the winter, best trails, how to stay warm, how to stay motivated. Um, so I hope you'll join us then. Thank you so much.